gathered together once again, once again, in the congregation at prayer, our verse for the week is James 5.16. It's a great verse because it not only connects to the daily significance of baptism by living in our baptism through confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another's healing by Christ's forgiveness. It anticipates then uh, next week when in our catechism annual meditation we're in confession and the office of the keys. So those two parts of the catechism link very strongly together. So we will have Psalm 143 as our uh, psalm for the week, praying responsively by half verse and using that James 5 verse on the congregation at prayer as an antiphon. And then we will, we will sing the last uh, stanzas of hymn 766 on the Lord's Prayer. It's Luther's catechism uh, hymn on the Lord's Prayer, teaching each petition. And we'll start with stanza six. We did the first five verses uh, in the fall. And now we're returning to it here uh, in Epiphany. Uh, Forgive our sins, Lord, we implore, that they may trouble us no more. We too will gladly those forgive who hurt us by the way they live. Help us in our community to serve each other willingly. And lead not into temptation, Lord, when our grim foe and all his horde would vex our souls on every hand. Help us resist. Help us to stand firm in the faith, a mighty host through comfort of the Holy Ghost. From evil, Lord, deliver us. The times and days are perilous. Redeem us from eternal death. And when we yield our dying breath, console us, grant us calm release, and take our souls to you in peace. So that's fifth, sixth, seventh petition, and then the conclusion, which centers on the amen. Amen that is, so shall it be. Make strong our faith in you that we may doubt not, but with trust believe. That what we ask we shall receive, thus in your name and at your word we say, Amen. Oh, hear us, Lord. So, hearing those words, you can sometimes better focus on them when you're not as familiar with them at the time you sing them. All right, so let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant. For no unbelief is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sick in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you 
Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Heavenly Father, through your word and spirit, you call us to daily contrition and repentance for our sin, that the old Adam in us might be drowned and die with all his sins and evil desires. Work true repentance in our hearts every day. Teach us to confess our sins and to flee to Christ for our life and salvation. By your word of forgiveness, raise up the new man of faith in us, that we might live before you in righteousness and purity forever. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we commend to you Rosie and Frank's dear friend, the Reverend Dwayne Schneider, who is hospitalized and about to enter a nursing home, that you would bring guidance and relief and sustain him temporally until that day you call him from this veil of tears to the eternal joys of paradise. We continue to pray for Jeremy in his recovery, Gabby in her therapeutic treatment, Jan as she recovers from eye surgery, Ralph at home after a three-week hospitalization, Nancy, Abriebo Maso, Jim, James, all undergoing treatment for cancer, and especially little Josiah who will undergo cancer surgery this coming week. Bring healing and renewed strength and health according to your will. Above all, sustain your servants in the peace of sins forgiven, and in their faith in Christ, that the evil foe would have no power over them. We give thanks to you for delivering our brother Kufre Abasi from uh, violence in Nigeria, and we pray that you would protect with your holy angels all those who teach at the seminary and all of the students who learn. All this we commend to you in the words our Savior taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 766, stanzas 6 through 9. Forgive our sins, Lord, we implore, that they may trouble us no more. We too will gladly those forgive who hurt us by the way they live. Help us in our community to serve each other willingly. Lead not into 
into temptation, Lord. Where our grim foe with all his horde would vex our souls on every hand. Help us resist, help us to stand firm in the faith of mighty host. Through comfort of the Holy Ghost. From evil, Lord, deliver us. The times and days are perilous. Redeem us from eternal death. And when we yield our dying breath, Console us, grant us calm release, and take our souls to you in peace. Amen, that is, so shall it be. Make strong our faith in you that we may doubt not but with trust believe that what we ask we shall receive, thus in your name and at your word, we say amen, all oh, hear us, Lord. All right, we're going to jump right into Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, I want you to jump to verse 17, a key verse. Where Jesus says to his disciples and to us, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, the smallest strokes in a Hebrew letter, Old Testament written in Hebrew, not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The reason I had you jump to that particular passage is because Jesus is asserting, hello Connie, Jesus is asserting that the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures is fulfilled in him. Not just selected verses, like there's a prophecy that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, that's true but the totality of the scriptures is fulfilled in him. The phrase, the law and the prophets, refers to the Old Testament. It's a technical phrase. The law refers to the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. So everything about creation Genesis 1 is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything about man being made in the image and likeness of God is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything about marriage, what God intended, is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything God intended for his king to be. David didn't fulfill that in the Old Testament. Jesus did. Everything he intended for a priest to be, Jesus fulfilled Everything he intended to a prophet to be, Jesus fulfilled. Every obligation of the law, the commands, Jesus fulfilled. Every promise of salvation, Jesus fulfilled. Get in the picture? Okay. And we may not always realize how, but uh, that's what studying the scriptures 
is about. Now, Jesus in John's gospel says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And in those words, he's commenting especially on the Torah, those five books of Moses. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because the Torah was considered to be the way of life and the source of truth. He says, I am it. And of course, in the Old Testament Torah, there's blood all over the place. In the slaughtering of these sacrifices, that's fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, so one of the purposes of Matthew's catechesis is that, very simply, our faith is in Christ and that we live in him who has fulfilled the law and the prophets for us. And therefore, he is our life, our salvation. And so that leads us into... Um, you know, verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, or as I like to translate it, without standing. So if you, if you transgress one of the most insignificant of commandments, you have no standing before God. So do any of us have a standing before God on that kind of basis? No, not at all. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who does every commandment from the least to the greatest and also teaches them, not simply by oral exposition, but by the life he lives. Who is it that does this? Jesus, yes. So here again, we must be found in him. For I say to you, verse 20, that unless your righteousness... When was the first time we heard that word righteousness in Matthew's gospel? What? At his baptism, Roseanne. Very good. Remember, to fulfill all righteousness, he was baptized. He was baptized into every obligation, command, and promise of the Old Testament. He was baptized into that. To fulfill all righteousness, so every word, every command, every promise of the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, if our transgression of the least of the commandments gives us no standing, then we must have the righteousness of Christ. And that's what it is to be a Christian. It is to have the righteousness of Christ. One of my teachers, whose name is Dr. David Scare, has railed for years, and those of you who are a long-time devout Lutherans will appreciate this, has railed against the idea that the only place in the New Testament where justification is taught, that we're justified, declared righteous by grace through faith, is in St. Paul's epistles. Now, St. Paul teaches it, but Dr. Scare's point is Jesus teaches it. This was not an invention of St. Paul. St. Paul is simply catechizing us on things taught by Jesus. The righteousness that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees is Christ's righteousness. And we must be found in him, to use language of Paul, not having a righteousness of our own, but the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So I wanted to begin the Sermon on the Mount here because it ties into then what Matthew does in the structure of the book that I delayed talking about until coming back from symposium. This is what's called the first discourse in Matthew's gospel, a discourse of Jesus. Uh, and in the discourses of Jesus, this is where he's doing a lot of extended teaching. Okay, uh, Do you know how many discourses there are in Matthew's gospel? There are five discourses. And he does that structurally to make the point that Jesus was making here. I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So the five books of Moses are fulfilled in Christ. And he, he highlights that through this literary device of arranging five discourses of Jesus. Okay, And um, 
So that's part of his catechesis. I want to go through the discourses of Jesus very briefly um, in a survey section, and to do so not only highlighting what he teaches in each discourse, but making some comments about how this connects to the Old Testament. Okay? So for example, the first discourse, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount, we've just seen how he talks about righteousness. Now, the scribes and Pharisees, in verse 20, who were mentioned, their idea of righteousness is that they were righteous. It's as if they had no sin, because we keep the what? We keep the law. Okay? So that was the position of the Pharisees, and that was the false faith of many in the Old Testament who believed that they were saved by works and not by faith. Do you remember in the Torah, Genesis, Abraham believed in the Lord and he was accounted righteous. It should take us right to this, whose righteousness was accounted to Abraham in the Old Testament, the righteousness of Christ. So the works righteous faith was a big thing in the Old Testament. That's a false faith. It always has been, it is now, it ever shall be, okay? But the Pharisees had a way of justifying themselves. There is a, uh, you know, local conservative talk radio person that says that is the second strongest motivation or something like that, to self-justify. I've never heard him say what the first strongest drive is. Do you know? Oh, I thought maybe it was, like, to preserve your life, which I suppose procreation does, okay? Uh, so, but self-justification, rationalization. The, the, Pharisees, the Pharisees were good at this. Like, what's the fifth commandment? You shall not murder. I know you pacifists say kill. I didn't change the words, but murder is the better translation, okay, just saying. But, uh, so, John, how many people have you shot to death? None. How many people have you stabbed to death? None. How many of people have you poisoned with arsenic? Um, how many people have you um, asphyxiated? None. Have you ever committed the physical act of murder? No. So I guess that you are righteous according to the fifth commandment. But look at verse 21. Jesus says, You've heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother, now without a cause, I'll talk about it another time, shall be in danger of the judgment. You ever been angry with someone? Oh, yeah. Murderer! Okay. <laughs> but that's part of what Jesus wants to do with the self-righteous Pharisees. I've, I've never committed murder, not like Verla here. Came from a large family and not many of them are left. You know, wonder why? No, why? Okay. But that was the, the self-justifying of the uh, Pharisees. And it, it, it comes out of rabbinic traditions in the Old Testament. What's the matter, Susan? You've got that look on your face. Every time I see it, I... What? This is what ticked off the Pharisees. Oh, yes. And why they accused Jesus and his disciples. Your, your rabbi, your... Jesus is destroying the law and the prophets through this kind of preaching. But who says he, who cares what he says? This is what the law says, and I say this. Who cares? Who cares what he says? So obviously, well, they recognized that he had authority. It wasn't just what he said to the people. They knew. His words ring true even though there are those who abjectly deny it. Yeah, I don't like it, I hate it, you're wrong, you have no right to say it, but they knew he was right. 
They also hated him for saying those things because the people knew he was right. The common blokes out there. Okay, now, what is the, um, what's the sixth commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Now, I'm, I'm, a, little, I'm a little less willing to uh, ask the kinds of questions that I asked of... Thank you. Okay? But the Pharisees believed that um, adultery was very narrowly defined as you could only be with one woman, the woman you were married to, and if you engaged in sexual activity with another woman that you were not married to while you're married to one, that was adultery. So what they were very good at is since Moses gave a, it sounded like no-fault divorce clause in the Torah, they could practice serial monogamy. You know what that is? Go from one wife to the other. So I write you a certificate of divorce because you burned the whatever you burned. And now you're, I'm divorced from you and I go to marry another woman. So they could hop from person to person and all of that was, quote, keeping the law justifying yourself. I haven't committed adultery because I've divorced that wife and I've gone to another. And then I've divorced her and I've gone on to another. And I've divorced her and I've gone to, on to another. So Jesus says, verse 27, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, under that kind of scrutiny, who is exempt from the accusing finger of the law? No one. Um, the Eighth Commandment. How many of you as children, when you were children, you don't do this any longer? I'm confident. Say things which could be technically considered true, but are really covering up the truth with a falsehood, right? So he says in verse um, 33, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but I say to you, uh, and you shall perform your oaths, but I say to you, do not swear at all. And then verse 37, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Whatever is more than these is from the evil one, the devil. And why is he mentioned here in the Incidents of lying and false witness. He's a liar. That's what he did uh, at the beginning in the fall into sin. See? So I'm giving you examples here of how Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is going right back to the Torah, right back to the obligations of commandments there, and he's not only explicating them, but in explicating them the way he does here, showing that it's more than just outward actions, but it goes to a person's very heart. He is also describing someone, isn't he? And who is he describing? Himself. He is the man of absolute faith. He is the righteous one. And we can talk about the righteousness of Christ in two ways. Here, I'm mentioning his active obedience in that he, he does not murder. He is not unjustly angry and filled with bitterness and vengeance. In him, there is no covetous desire, lustful thought. In him, there is only the word of truth. Okay? So, whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great. He, he, in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches this, but in his ministry, he also does it. Nobody likes a hypocrite who says one thing, but does another. That's one of the reasons why in the pastoral epistles, they're saying the overseer 
the bishops, the pastors, they got to be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled. You can't have a pastor preaching one thing and living and doing another. Okay. So at any rate, uh, coming back, though, to Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is the one who does and teaches. Okay. He teaches and he does what the law demands. So righteousness is in two forms, the act of obedience, and then, of course, the entire... Uh, gospel of Matthew culminates in the passive righteousness of Christ, where, again, going back to the Old Testament, he becomes the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for sin. Under the judgment of God's law, the sin of the world was imputed to him, as we discussed at his baptism, and then he is nailed to the cross and sacrificed for this. That's the passive obedience. Okay. Last night in choir, because this, we're preparing a canticle from Jonah for Sunday's choral response to the Jonah Old Testament reading, and the words in the canticle of Jonah all belong in the mouth of Jesus, because Jonah is a picture of the death and the resurrection of Christ. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish and then vomited out three days, so the Son of Man will die and on the third day rise again. That's the sign of Jonah. But what's interesting, I tried to point out to the choir, and I point it out to you, when the sailors identify through what Jonah says, he's the reason why there's this storm going on, he tells them what? Throw me into the sea. And do they want to do it? They don't. They, try, they throw other stuff in. They try to lighten the load, and they try to avoid throwing him in. And finally, there's no other way around it but to throw him in. But what I pointed out is, why didn't he just jump in the water? No, just as he had to be thrown into the water. That's a picture of Christ. Remember at Jesus' baptism, he didn't baptize himself. John was the instrument of the Father to baptize him. His crucifixion, he doesn't crucify himself. He is crucified. It is done to him. That's the passive obedience. You can say this also, by the way, since we're on this three weeks of meditation, the congregation on prayer and baptism. If even Jesus was baptized by someone else, then baptism is not something you do either. You are baptized. Okay, a child, neither a child nor an adult baptizes themselves. But at any rate, this simply goes back to this, uh, this idea of the righteousness of Christ, both his active righteousness in what he teaches and does, and his passive righteousness that he suffers for sin. Susan. Now you all heard it. Yeah, Sheol is an interesting concept. And um, it refers, or I'd like you to focus, is being plunged into death, which carries with it all manner of anfektungen, that German word of this angst. And central to death is separation, as is expressed by Jesus on the cross from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. Uh, yet you will not leave my soul in Sheol, in that condition of being forsaken. So it's like we experience death before we die. Okay. 
We experience death before we die in the judgment of the law, in the torment of a guilty conscience, in the accusations of the evil one, in the grief that we experience through the death of loved ones that we are separated from. Okay? So I don't know if that helps you. Okay? Um, all right. Now, one other thing before I leave the Sermon on the Mount, then I'm going to more quickly look at the other uh, discourses. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then you have the Beatitudes and so forth. The picture itself should remind you of something in the Old Testament. Going up on the mountain. Moses. Yeah. So in Matthew's Gospel, and it's highlighted here at the beginning, uh, you have this going up and down from the mountain, just as Moses did, who communed with the Lord at the burning bush and so this Sermon on the Mount, he is made to look like what Deuteronomy 18 promised, the prophet greater than Moses. All right. So I'm not, and his highlighting of the law here. So the Sermon on the Mount is the first discourse of Jesus. Um, and then the second discourse of Jesus is in Matthew chapter 10. It is set up by a summary statement. In verse, chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people, but when he saw the multitudes, notice the parallel, how the Sermon on the Mount was set up. He goes up on the mount, seeing the multitudes, he goes up on the mountain, and then he sits down and he opens his mouth and he teaches the disciples. Now here, he had been in all of these villages, teaching in their synagogues where the scriptures were read, the law and the prophets, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Splachna. Because, that's the Greek word for compassion. His heart breaking open for them. Because they were weary. Harassed. Scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. Many people need to hear and be brought into the kingdom of God. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, to send out other ministers to bring them in. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. For Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who, was, who also betrayed him. So notice how they are going to do what he, that's right, Don, the same thing. So how he preached and taught in the synagogues, and had the authority of God's salvation to deliver the people, they would preach in the synagogues and have the authority to do these things as well. So the second discourse is all about Jesus' word to the, um, to the apostles and to the ministry. And in it, he talks about confessing him before men, and he will confess us before the Father who is in heaven. So the prophetic theme that was introduced in the Sermon on the Mount as the prophet greater than, than Moses 
He's now carried off here. What did Moses do in the Old Testament? Remember his father-in-law Jethro said, hey, dude. Don't you remember that passage? Hey, dude. He was trying to do all the work himself. And he says, appoint heads of tribes and households and in groups, narrowing it down, and let them care, shoulder the burden with you. Okay? So Jesus ends up doing this as well, okay, here in the second discourse. All right? And um, what's interesting to note then is that the authority of Jesus through his word to cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, is extended to the apostles who heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. There's no diminution of authority and power. It is in the second discourse that he teaches complete and total reliance upon the Lord, particularly in the face of persecution and suffering for the work they're called to do. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament, even Moses, who is a type of Christ, not only is the lawgiver, but also is a redeemer. He was sent to release them from slavery. Did he suffer ridicule and rejection? Yeah, by his own people, right. And he highlights that here. Look at... Um, Verse 34 of chapter 10. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now this is hard to hear, but there is strange comfort in it, especially when we're trying to be faithful to our Lord and all we want to do is love him and have others receive his wonderful gospel, and they don't. Not only do they not receive it, they, they react to it with vitriolic anger. He says, I have not come, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own house, household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What does a cross end in? Death. So it's the death to self. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. And then finally, verse 40, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Notice how that Again, this theme of no diminution of authority. So when I stand in front of the congregation or in front of you in private confession, I say, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is not me doing it, it's Christ doing it. And the Father who sent him. So the Father sends Jesus, Jesus sends the apostles, the apostles call and ordain other ministers, but the authority runs in continuity uh, back to God the Father. Okay? Uh, by the way, this multiplication of work then, in John's gospel, Jesus is speaking about it on Holy Thursday, when in the upper room he says, greater works than these will you do, because I go to the Father. It doesn't mean they're going to do even more spectacular works, but it's the multiplication so if you think on any Sunday on planet Earth, the gospel and the Lord's Supper being preached and celebrated all over the world, it's greater in quantity, okay? but the same Lord. So anyway, that's the second uh, discourse. Uh, the, the, it ends in chapter 11, verse 1. It came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Okay, so there's the, the second discourse. The third discourse is in Matthew chapter 13. Now, 
You notice how those first two discourses, it's, among other things, highlighting the theme that Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. But then he extends the authority of his prophetic word in the second discourse to the twelve and to ministers who follow after. In chapter 13, these are called the kingdom parables of Jesus. One right after another. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. Well, the kingdom of God is not like any kingdom of this world's order. Okay? Now with Queen Elizabeth or... Uh, what's Putin's first name again? Vladimir. Oh, Vladimir, yes. Vladdy, Vladdy Putin. I kept, I kept thinking of... Did any of you have this reaction over the last couple of weeks? Any, any British name come to your mind? Neville Chamberlain, you know? You know, he promised it's only going to be a minor incursion into, Pol into Poland. So we'll just... Well, anyway, I digress, but not really. It's not the kingdoms of this world. Not at all like this. So if he's talking about the kingdom of God is like... Jesus as prophet in the first two discourses. So now in these discourses, king, the king. Okay. So the theme of king in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So the preeminent king in the Old Testament was David from the tribe of Judah. And the son of David would establish a kingdom that would never end. Okay, so here we've, we've got the kingdom parables, and the nature of that kingdom is going to be explicated, which is a very different kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. Okay, and um, oh, there's so much, when we, when we get to it, we'll, we'll say that, but if you, the first, uh, the purpose of parables was to shroud mysteries, and we'll talk about that. The purpose of parables is not to instantaneously make things easy to understand, but to shroud mysteries. And the mystery above all mysteries that is shrouded by the parables is the mystery of God's grace, his undeserved love. So in verse 10, disciples came to him saying, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because I want them to understand everything I'm saying. No, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Wow, isn't that an amazing assertion? We'll, we'll talk about it in detail when we get to this. But the first parable was the sower and the seed, which is a parable about the word. What's a great cool thing is to see how in the, he preached the word in the Sermon on the Mount. The law and the prophets are fulfilled in him. He's the word made flesh. In the second discourse, he sends out the twelve to preach the word. And now in the kingdom parables, the first parable is about the sower and the seed. He's the sower. The seed is the word of God. And so the kingdom of God is about the gift of the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ that comes through the word. This is where, when you were in the, the small catechism under the first and second petitions, you see that God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught. And we lead lives according to it. And then the second petition, by kingdom come, the kingdom of God comes when our Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit so that we believe his word. Okay? Luther knew the scriptures that's why his explanations are so biblical. Um, then there's the parable of the tares and the wheat, how you can't tell the difference between believer and unbeliever. The parable of the mustard seed, verse 31. The parable of the leaven, you know, yeast, verse 33. Um, verse 36, the, uh, the parable of the tares is explained. Verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure. 
Verse 45, the parable of the pearl of great price. Verse 47, the parable of the dragnet. And then Jesus is rejected at the end of this discourse in Nazareth. But one of the things that will highlight in the parables, in that discourse, the third discourse, is that the grace of God in Christ that the word of the gospel proclaims is radically different from the way in which people think in this world. The, the, the first example of that, the parable of the sower and the seed. Would you pay a guy, John, to throw three quarters of the seed that you want planted to grow a good crop where it doesn't belong? No way. No way. I'm firing his butt. That's how things work in this world. And you'd be right to do so. But in the kingdom of God, it works very differently. Because the gospel is preached everywhere, even among those who don't seem to have any regard for it. All right. So there is the third discourse of Jesus, the kingdom parables in chapter 13. Now we're getting towards the end of the gospel. Chapter 18 is the fourth discourse. And this is the discourse that, in terms of Old Testament, Old Testament prophecies, it reminds, it should remind us of things that the Lord said about the day is coming when they shall no longer teach, know the Lord, but they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now that's in the prophets in Jeremiah. And throughout the prophets, major and minor prophets, the accent on the forgiving grace of the Lord, which is not by works. In the Torah, the longest running narrative is the account of Joseph who is, you could say, murdered by his brother, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, because they hate him. They intend to kill him. They throw him in a pit. Reuben intercedes. They end up selling him to slave traders. And in that text, he is, all manner of evil happens to him. Joseph is made to look like Jesus. But through it all, the Lord was with Joseph. When he is sold as a slave, when he is falsely accused in Potiphar's house by Potiphar's wife of adultery, uh, of being forgotten when he's in the dungeon by um, the butler, the cupbearer for the, the king. Uh, and through it all, the Lord is with him until he's established as prince in Egypt. And uh, they, everybody comes to him. But remember Joseph with his brothers. When he is finally revealed to them, he says, you meant evil against me. But God meant your evil for good to save many people alive as it is this day. Not only from famine, but from damnation. Who does that sound like? You know, you meant evil against me, but God intended this evil for good. This is the theology of the cross. It's what happened to Jesus. Through it all, the Lord was with our Lord, and he was faithful unto death for his enemies. And so from chapter 39 to chapter 50 in Genesis, this is all about mercy and forgiveness. So this Fourth discourse, who is the greatest, has in the midst of it the parable of the lost sheep, which is a, another radical parable because this shepherd goes after one lost sheep. So the fourth discourse is highlighting the grace of God. And in Matthew 18, the dealing with the sinning brother is these are sins and we'll talk about it at great length, but sins that lead to the loss of faith. 
So the sin of impenitence, the sin of unbelief. Matthew 18 is often used as a club against people for interpersonal relationships and how they should deal. Well, no one ever deals correctly in interpersonal relationships. That's kind of a given from the get-go. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. It has to do with trying to win the brother back to repentance and faith, the very thing that the kingdom parables were about that preceded this in the third discourse. And so the parable of the unforgiving uh, servant is the climax in chapter 18, you know, the servant that is forgiven a debt that is like the national debt, and then he goes and finds his fellow servant, grabs him by the trachea, and says, pay everything that you owe. So the fourth discourse uh, centers on the forgiveness of sins uh, and extends into the discussion of marriage and uh, divorce and the blessing of children uh, at the end of that where it all, um, where it began. All right, so the fifth and final discourse is uh, the eschatological parables uh, or words of Jesus starting in uh, chapter 23. And isn't it interesting, the fifth discourse begins with woes being preached against the scribes and Pharisees who were the ones who made the accusation that is mentioned at the beginning of the first discourse, don't think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy but to fulfill. So he preaches woes against them for rejecting the forgiving grace of God that was explicated in the fourth discourse, if that makes uh, sense. So the, fourth, uh, the fifth discourse, chapter 23, chapter 24, where he talks about the destruction of the temple, the parable of the fig tree, chapter 25, the wise and the foolish virgins, the parable of the talents, and the fifth discourse ends in chapter 26, verse 1. And then you are in the passion narrative itself. All right. Well, those are the five discourses very briefly. And they really do uh, tie together. And as we go through them, we will highlight even more deeply their connection to the Old Testament. Um, Petrina. Oh, yes, thank you. Um, there is a priestly function then, I would, I would argue also. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in the fourth one especially, thanks for jogging my head on that. Because you got prophet, king, and priest. And, and where are they delivered, Petrina? Well, particularly the fifth one is in the temple. Okay. Yeah. In the fourth one, talking about the forgiving grace, there's another problem that the Pharisees and scribes have. Of course, we all know the Jews in general didn't like the Samaritans, and they didn't think salvation was for the nations, the Gentiles. Then after that, children. So in the fourth discourse, there's the exposition in Matthew 18. Who is the greatest? It begins and ends with this discussion of children, where Jesus sets the, the child in the midst and said, this child is the greatest in the kingdom, which floored everybody that he would say that. Because what has the child done? What contribution to society has the child made? What money has the child earned? What accomplishments has the, you know, and that's why he, in Matthew's gospel, I think it's the, the strongest condemnations are given to those who cause one of these little ones who believe in him to lose their faith, to lose the kingdom of God, the third discourse. Okay? When you see these connections, so the purpose today is just kind of to go all the way through. Don, did you have, looked like you were raising your hand. Other questions? 
Did you learn anything today? Yes, Melinda. Well, for the fourth and the fifth, I mean, his priestly character is accented there. It's not as if, uh, you know, the idea of him being prophet and priest and king is just simply isolated in one area. But there are accents. There are themes. Okay? And one of, the, one of the things that's important and why we go through, like, this last year and then in Coffee Break Bible Study, we were looking at the, the divided kingdom and then the destruction of the kingdom you know, the Assyrian captivity and then the Babylonian captivity, is look how important in the Old Testament uh, the, the liturgy and the worship of Israel was, which they had departed from, okay? And so here you've got the temple, and he's preaching these kingdom parables to the, to the priests and to the scribes who, while the, while the temple was there, remember, how does, how does Holy Week begin? He drives them out, the money changers out of the temple. They had desecrated the temple. They had desecrated not only by their buying and selling and so forth, but they had desecrated the temple because they were not using it for the proclamation and dispensing of the grace of God. Remember, Judas Iscariot is paid the 30 pieces of silver to betray the Lord, and in a classic moment to show how they were not being priests the way God intended priests to be, he comes back to them, I betrayed innocent blood. That's true. And what do they say? Come to confession, we'll absolve you. No, what is that to us? You see to it. And that is, that is the condemnation in his woes. See, they were so imbued with this self-righteous works righteousness that the, the strongest um, display of anger on Jesus' part is against them for, for denying the forgiveness which is talked about so extensively in that fourth discourse. Okay? Other questions? So I, I think it's good for us to have a, kind of a survey, an overview of the, the lay of the land and I just, um, now I'll say something that, well, will sound funny, but obviously I believe the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God, okay? But it's actually in the study of the scriptures in this way that you realize it really is inspired by God. Nobody could invent this. No one could make all of these interlaced, interwoven tapestry of connections, okay? And so this is what disturbs me about these um, radical, Bible-doubting, quote-unquote, scholars that are on public television, or if some of you maybe have... Uh, get the great courses, you know, you could get uh, digital download videos, and you'll have someone like Bart Ehrman, who is supposedly a New Testament scholar, talking about the New Testament and asking a question in one of these series, when did Jesus become God? And it's based on the premise that he's just a man, but the Christian church is an entire fabrication and that the man Jesus from Nazareth was elevated to, to godlike status by a, a grand conspiracy of the early church to, to say things about him so that people would think he is God. I mean, talk about, talk about cynicism, you know. Buddha doing the same thing, don't so, so my, my point is that... Uh, there are actually many very, very smart people who are scholars who actually believe the Bible and can tell you more about these connections even than I'm able to do. But So you go to public television, anytime they talk about the Bible, it's wrong. 
because they, they will not have a confessing Christian doing, doing them. So, other, other uh, questions? John? Okay, I'm giving you great opportunity here. All right, well, we always try to end by 10.15, uh, and it's 10.10. So that's all for today. We'll start next, next week uh, walking through the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, John. Um, we have been praying for our friend Nancy Feely. Yes. Oh my.